Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We're midway through a series that we've called The Prayer. And before we get to our conversation for today, a brief family update from around here at Keystone. We had the tent or treat for the Keystone kids on Tuesday night. Many of you were there, an amazing time. But midway through the event, I realized that we actually had to have a costume contest because there was a costume that was so unbelievably amazing. It was head and shoulders above any other costume. The greatest costume I've ever seen. That's right, check this out. This kid Lane dressed up like me. And I mean, I sent texts to friends that said things like, I've made it. I, I have now made it. Anyway, uh, so well done, Lane. Congratulations. We don't really have a prize because we weren't going to have a costume contest, but now we did. So anyway, um, yeah, we're in week four of the series, The Prayer. And in this series, we're talking about the most famous prayer in the world, uh, the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up in church, you probably said it hundreds of times. It's a prayer that Jesus taught to his first followers one day when they came up to him and said, hey, would you teach us to pray? Because you have the power of God in your hands and, and we want to pray like you pray. And, and so Jesus basically unleashes what has become the Lord's Prayer. What I, what I love about the Lord's Prayer, a couple different things. Number one, it gives us a window into how Jesus saw the world and helps us see how he wants his followers to see the world. And the second, the more I dig into it, I'm convinced that the Lord's Prayer contains answers to life's greatest questions. Who is God? Who am I? And why am I here? So one day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus' first followers come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And this is what he says. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive, have forgiven our debtors or, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Same idea. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's, that's what Jesus teaches his followers when they say, how should we pray? And as I looked at it, there are six unique images that surface in the Lord's Prayer. And so what we're doing this fall is taking a look at them one week, one per week. We talked about the Father, kingdom of heaven, the name of God, daily bread. That's our conversation today forgiveness, and temptation. Six images that answer those questions right at the core of the human experience. Uh, and so if you haven't been with us, let me catch you up really briefly. In week one, we talked about how Jesus wants his followers to address God as our heavenly father or our father in heaven. And we noted that in the Old Testament, there are a lot of different names for God, including our father in heaven. Jesus takes that name and puts it at the top of the list. And the reason I believe he does this is God is an ideal father. And when you consider an ideal father, you would have to argue that an ideal father always loves, always provides, is always in his kid's corner, and is always on their side. And I think that's the heart behind why Jesus wants us to pray to our Father in heaven. Then the second week, uh, we talked about the idea of the kingdom of heaven. And if you grew up like most of us, heaven was always something for later, but Jesus takes heaven and pulls it into the now. He says, you need to pray that to God that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. To those first followers, heaven was the place where God's will and only God's will was done. And, and we exist on earth and there's a lot of wills done. And it's like Jesus says to his followers, I want you to see your lives as full of potential to bring a bit of heaven here 
and now. It's what God wants, and he's looking for you to partner with him for his kingdom to come. That was week two. Then last week, we talked about the name of God, and we talked about how it's connected to one of the original Ten Commandments, the one that says, you shall not or thou shalt not misuse the Lord's name or take the Lord's name in vain. And we talked about how the name of God really was about association. God doesn't want his name associated with something that he wants nothing to do with. And so he says to his followers, you know, uh, people are going to look to you to see what I'm like. And so I want you to represent me well. And so once again, a concept that Jesus throws into the Lord's Prayer, an image, is loaded with potential application for you and me 2,000 years later. Well, that, then that brings us to this week, and we get to enter sort of the second half of Jesus' prayer. And I would argue the second half is all about application. After sort of getting us grounded in who we are and who God is and a bit of our purpose, Jesus gets really, really practical. This is what he says uh, for our conversation today. He says, give us today our daily bread. And many of us have recited this line thousands of times. And if you're like most people, you've never really considered what it might mean. You've never really considered the context. But when you look at the context, if you said the words daily bread to first century Jewish teenagers who would have been those first followers of Jesus, it was an image that was loaded with meaning. It was central to their story as a birth, of birth as a nation. You may recall that the children of a man named Israel were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years and God comes to them and rescues them, brings them out of slavery and promises to bring them into a promised land, a land where he would bless his people. Uh, but shortly after rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, God brings his people not first to the promised land, but he brings them into a season of intense training. See, he has plans to use them to change the world, but they weren't ready yet. If they were going to be his people, then they were going to have to learn to trust him. And so God, after rescuing the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, enrolls them in trust school, which is the name of our talk. I was really proud of it. Thank you very much. Okay. So God leads them out of Egypt and he leads them into the desert of the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, geographically, I brought a satellite image I found from our friends at the Google. Um, and you can see here on the left, this is the green of the Nile Delta. It's lush there. Stuff grows there. It's a wonderful place to be unless you're a slave and then it's not. Uh, and then also you see the green of the promised land right here around the corner. But this space in between, this triangular piece of real estate is the Sinai Peninsula. And the Sinai Peninsula is anything but green. Here's an image that someone took on the ground somewhere in the middle of the Sinai. It's dry, it's barren, it's rocky, and it's a rough place to hang out. It's dry and desolate, and it's a space where almost no food or water are found. And so not surprisingly, these freed slaves, upon finding themselves in the Sinai, begin to complain. And they complain to these two guys that God has appointed to lead the people, Moses and another guy named Aaron. Here's what they say. In the desert... The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Like he should have just taken us out back in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat, which sounds a little weird, but whatever, and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. I mean, we were slaves in Egypt, but at least we had cheeseburgers, okay? And before we judge them too quickly, this was a valid complaint. 
Because when this complaint surfaced, death seemed inevitable. And they had questions like, why in the world had God rescued them from slavery only to starve them in the desert? Remember, these people had only recently been reintroduced to God. They hardly knew him. Plus, practically, how in the world do you feed so many people in the desert? The answer to that question is daily bread. Check out the next verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. So it's kind of like, how are we going to feed the people? Oh, no problem. I'll just rain down bread from heaven. Oh, okay, great. No one saw that coming. Uh, the people, God says, are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And then he continues. He says, in this way, I will, and what does it say? Test them. They're in trust school. They need to learn to trust me. So I will test them and see whether or not they will follow my instructions. God is trying to transform a freed group of slaves, loosely organized nation state into a people for himself, a people th through whom he would show the world what he is like, and a people through whom he had promised generations earlier to bless the entire world. They're not ready. For God's purposes to be accomplished, his people need to trust him completely. So he leverages something that's absolutely critical to their survival, their food supply. So a few verses later, we get that account of the first day the bread from heaven fell. It goes like this. When the morning dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared of the, on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, and I love this, what is it? Right? And so, for they did not know what it was. Thank you for that clarifying statement, Old Testament text. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. And if you've ever spent time in church, you may have heard the word manna. And so this is the reference to this, this stuff. And manna literally translates from the Hebrew as what is it? Isn't that great? Sometimes I do that with my boys. Like walk into their room and it's just trash. And I'm like, manna. I mean, what am I looking at here? Seriously. Feel free to use that one. It's a great way to teach your kids the Bible. So um, manna was a provision, but manna was also a test. By the way, I did some research and most scholars believe that manna would have looked something like cornflakes. Isn't that awesome? I just think it's funny. That's just for free. Okay. So God is trying to cultivate trust within the people. And so the manna came not only with the instructions to gather it, but, but there was a disclaimer. Check this out. It says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Each one, as in each person or head of household, is to gather as much as he needs. Some of you have bigger families. You can gather more. Um, the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered more, some little. He continues. He says, Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, because they're people, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. I actually Googled pictures of maggots and decided not to show it to you. Just trust me, really disgusting. And it raises a fascinating question. Why didn't God let his chosen people store up more food than they needed for that day? I mean, isn't living with your future in mind a better way to live? And it is. And doesn't the Old Testament actually teach people to sort of save up for a rainy day? It does. And don't people who consume everything they possibly can in a given day and have nothing left for the next day, don't those people often end up in trouble? They do. So why would God intentionally place people in such a precarious position? Because he wanted to teach them to trust him 
for their daily bread. They were in trust school, and so God didn't allow them to store any extra. They couldn't save up anything for a rainy day. And if the manna didn't fall every day, the people were in deep trouble. But they knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God was their only hope in the desert. And one day at a time, they learned to trust him. One day at a time, they came to believe that and understand at the deepest level that when God is all you have, you realize he's all you need. When God is all you have, you realize he's all you need. And that point is reinforced as the nation graduates from trust school, because eventually they do. After 40 years in the desert and 40 years of eating manna, just let that set in, they reach the promised land. And their leader Moses, who knows he's not the one to lead them into the promised land, gives the commencement address as they graduate from trust school. And we can find this commencement address in an Old Testament book called Deuteronomy. But for four decades, they've learned to trust God with their daily survival. And in that time, they've cultivated a relationship with him. But Moses sees storm clouds on the horizon as this people enter the promised land, a land they, they know is flowing with milk and honey. He sees storm clouds on the horizon from a very unexpected place. Moses knows they're about to be blessed. Here's the warning he gives them in Deuteronomy 8. Moses says to the people, when you have eaten and are satisfied, so you're in the land, now you've eaten, you're satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Listen, God wants you to trust him with everything. And you've learned to do that in the desert. But you see, you're about to enter a different space, a space where there will be abundance. Don't take your eyes off your relationship with God. He continues. He says, otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, blessing, 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 then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Oh, but he's not done yet. Check this out. He says, he led you through the vast and dreadful desert, the Sinai, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the hard rock, which by the way is a story for another day, really great story. Anyway, he gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. Don't forget the lessons of trust school. And in the next verse, Moses tells them what happens when people forget the lessons of trust school. He tells them what happens to their faith in God when they start to place their faith in themselves and they feel self-sufficient in their resources. Here's what he says. Um, he says, but remember the Lord your God, for he, it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Like back the train up, right? God is the one who gives you the ability and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is Today, So after reminding them of their story and their identity, Moses points out something, that when you don't feel like you need God, you have trouble trusting him with your dreams, with your desires, with your passions, with your opportunities, with your plans. He says you'll turn from him and lose your purpose in the world. 
In other words, when you store up more bread than you need, you forget that you need God. And it doesn't happen in an instant. It's a long, slow fade when your heart moves away from trust in God and begins to place your trust in your abilities and your resources. And he says, when that happens, God will become functionally irrelevant to you. I am so glad this isn't true for any of us today, right? Would you agree? Isn't that, yeah, it's, yeah. Actually, I'm convinced that the wealth of our culture is one of the reasons so many Americans are so apathetic in their pursuit of God. Without realizing it and without meaning to, we've come to a spot where we really believe deep down that we don't need God. I mean, we need him for what happens when we die for sure, right? Because we don't have the ability to control that. But for the here and now, it's like we, we kind of got this. But see, a relationship with God is built when we trust him with everything. And we live in the easiest time in human history for us to believe that we don't need God because our closets are full of clothes. Our refrigerators are full of food. Our calendars are full of opportunities to travel and to be entertained. And in the midst of our busy lives, we sort of quietly come to a space where we don't really believe that we need God until the bottom falls out, right, of our health or our finances or our relationships. And we're awakened to the reality that, that this sort of self-sufficiency thing that we've been living with is, was really a mirage from the start. So what do we do with all this, right? Is, is wealth a curse when it comes to our faith? And is there a way to build trust in God even while we're saving for the future? Or should we just all give everything away and move into a van down by the river, right? I mean, what do we do when we have more daily bread than we need? And fortunately, the New Testament contains an answer to this tension. The answer is found in a New Testament letter written to early Christians living in a city called Ephesus. And Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the ancient world. It was full of opportunities, it was full of ventures, and it was full of people with resources. And more than a few of these people with resources became followers of Jesus. They joined the church in Ephesus. And we know how they are instructed to live because of a letter written 2,000 years ago by a pastor named Paul to another pastor named Timothy who was serving in the city of Ephesus. You should know that when Paul writes these words to Timothy, Paul knew the people in Ephesus. He had spent three years living in the city, longer than any other city. He spent time in Ephesus. So when Paul is writing these words, he has specific individuals in mind. So here's, here's what he says. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Paul says, command those, or in the Greek it actually more easily translates instruct those. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. So this wasn't just an Old Testament problem. He says, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. And it's funny, when we Americans, we read this verse, and I've done this for years, we think, command those who are rich in this present world. That's not me, right? And we think that, but historically speaking, almost all of us in this room are wealthy by historical standards because historical standards would say if you have more than you need for today, you are in a position of wealth. You're rich, even if you don't feel like you're rich. 
and a time for another day, but um, you know, most of us don't feel rich because we only compare ourselves to people that have more than we do. Okay, but that's a side comment. We'll move on. So, uh, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And once again, you see, it's all too natural when we have more than we need. Our hope, our trust, our faith, our belief begins to migrate from God to wealth because we believe that we can control the outcomes of our lives. And our hope migrates even though deep down we know that our wealth is uncertain. We know we can't control everything. But in the end, our wealth, our resources are not a great place to place our hope. Instead, Paul writes, don't put your hope in the provision. Put your hope in the provider. That's our big idea for today. Don't put your hope in the provision, but put your hope in the provider. And as, as Paul continues, he tells us how we can do that. He says, okay, Paul, what do we do? He says, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. And then he says in the next verse, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. He says, in this way, they will lay up for themselves as a firm foundation, treasure for the age to come so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In other words, in order to keep your hope from migrating in times of abundance, Paul would say, systematically invest in things that help bring a bit of heaven here. Be generous and systematically align your heart with God's heart. And in doing so, you're taking a step towards his kingdom. You're partnering with him. You're partnering with the provider. And you start to see your resources as a way not only to bless you or to bless your family, but to actually bless other people. You're sort of a conduit for resources to be used to change the world. Paul says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, and to be willing to share. When you do that, you're constantly reminding yourselves of the bigger story in this life. People who do this realize over and over again that they were placed on this planet by God on purpose for purpose. And the promise that concludes this verse is something we all want. Paul says, if you do this, then you'll take hold of the life that is truly life. And that, that feels like something that's worth sacrificing for. Through systemic generosity, you can take a step towards a life that is truly life. It's what the first followers of Jesus called eternal life. It's a life that starts now and extends into forever. So when Jesus says to his first followers, give us this day our daily bread, it's an image that's charged. And it's an image that reminds us, all of us that have some extra, that it's not just for us. It's something that God wants to leverage to bring a bit of heaven here. Uh, before we go, I want to encourage those of you who this morning find yourself in a season of real need. And every week, uh, people come into this space because they need something. Life has fallen apart and the mirage of self-sufficiency has sort of been, been ripped from them. And, and if that's you and you're here this morning, I am absolutely thrilled that you're here. And I want to just encourage you because for a few of us, a prayer for God to provide daily bread isn't a warning about excess. It's a real request for necessary provision. 
you're in trust school. And so I want to encourage you to open yourself up to all of the creative ways that your Heavenly Father wants to meet your needs. Because if you can open yourself up to that, you may emerge from the season knowing God more deeply. It's interesting how this, this, some of this stuff times out, but this week a close friend of mine, Christina Thalen, posted something to her Facebook page. I had the opportunity of working with Christina for about, uh, about six years and just came to know her and her family uh, really, really well. Um, and, and this is what she posted, and it was interesting because you ever had a friend post a memory and think, oh, wow, that was that long ago? That was me this week with, with this. But this is what Christina wrote. She said, eight years ago today, this was on Tuesday, uh, Craig, her husband, lost his job. And Melanie, the daughter, had just started college. She said, I remember that we bought her a smartphone the day before and we returned it. We canceled our vacation in the fall. We buckled down, cut expenses, and circled the wagons and literally started down the trail to a new sort of life. For a whole bunch of us, we would go, worst case scenario. Okay. She says, it was terrifying at the time. But as we look back on it now, we realize that it was the best thing that could have happened to us. There have been times in my life that I haven't liked the road I was traveling on, but it always worked out better than I had ever even prayed it would. She says, so today, eight years later, I'm thankful for a God who never gave up on me, no matter how many times I tried to give up on him and who dreams so much bigger than I could ever imagine. If you're here this morning and you find yourself in a season of real need, please take some strength and courage from the stories of those of us who've already traveled that path and know that you have a heavenly father who loves you. There is a bigger plan at work and may that reality give you just enough ability to put your trust in him. And our prayer is that you would emerge from this season more convinced than ever of how much God loves you and how much your heavenly father cares for his kids. Would you stand? And I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you we thank you for the incredible clarity on this life that comes from studying the life and words of your son. I pray that as we reflect on this image of daily bread, we would, we would each take an honest look at how we're living. And if our confidence has begun to shift away from you to our resources, I pray that you would give us space to just consider how we might move back towards you. I pray that systematic generosity would be activated throughout this community and that, that we might even be a blessing to our community and to this world as we fight to bring a little bit of heaven here. And so we thank you. We bless you. We love you, desire to love you more. In the matchless name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Everyone said. Amen. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week.